Good morning. Yar, good morning. Welcome to Watts Radio. I'm Jeff. And I'm Hanji. And we'll be your hosts for this hour. This week on Watts Radio, we discuss the three R's with Professor Dan Sperling. That's the three revolutions of transportation. So, ride-sharing, autonomy, that's self-driving vehicles, and electrification that are set to revolutionize the transportation system. Yar, shiver me timbers and uh, pirate stuff. But before we set sail on that maiden voyage, we're going to have to, of course, brief you and catch you up to date on all the current events happening in the world of energy. Do I have to use the pirate voice the whole episode, Jeff? Unfortunately, pirate voices don't get you too far when it comes to discussing important things occurring in the world of solar and solar roadways, as well as whatever is probably happening with our friend Elon Musk. I love Iron Man, Jeff. Who doesn't? All that and more when we return on this piratey episode of Watts Radio. So stay with us.
It's over the hills with my great heavy pack. Over the roads with my great heavy sack. Holes in me shoes and me toes that peep through. Singing scammering doodle, it's me old rigadoo. I must be going to bed now for it's getting late at night. And the fires are all raged and it is all out of light. So now you've heard the story of me old rigadoo. Good night, God be with you, says old John Magoo. Hey, didn't I diddly 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 Good morning and welcome back to Watts Radio. If you've ever missed a Watts Radio episode and thought, I want to hear more, um, please visit us on the web at wattsradio.org and point-click listen if you so choose. Jeff, I love our website. It's always there to comfort me in the middle of the night when I'm lonely. You know what's also there comforting me at the middle of the night when I'm lonely? The fact that coal use is down 22% for the third quarter in 2016 compared to 2015. That's true, Jeff. Yes, I am amped about current events and energy. And this week I did read as well that coal use was way down, which continues a trend, obviously, in coal use. Um, and we, we would hope that coal use continues to go down despite the election of Herr Trump. Um, and other potential changes to the U.S. energy slash uh, Rick Perry economy. There's very few things Trump can do to reverse the trends of a declining coal, which maybe is a good thing considering if you haven't been following the news and you get all of your news from us, which uh, you should maybe branch out Please a little stop. bit. Yes. Um, the Arctic is suffering from extreme Extreme! Warming. Not an extreme sport, not a good thing. This is the mean temperatures for this month have been over 23 degrees from normal. Extreme mean. Normal. And, you know, it's gone up to periods where it's been 35 and 40 degrees Fahrenheit above the average. Mean extreme. That is quite literally, figuratively, literally, insane. Literally extreme mean. Yes, no, it is true. The Arctic has been very warm. Six degrees or seven degrees or as many degrees as you can count. I'm sorry, actually 35 degrees. But but very warm, uh, much, much warmer than, than uh, many were predicting or, uh, quite frankly, wanted to admit. And uh, hopefully... Many more degrees more than Kevin Bacon. So this many is... Many degrees uh, from Kevin Bacon. The ice coverage has declined. Um, it's eight standard deviations below what is normal. That's pretty much akin to you sending a letter to a random person on the wor- in the world, random, out of, you know, the roughly 8 billion people out there, randomly selecting one, and it being your childhood best friend. Wow. And then if that's not enough, make both of you struck by lightning at the same time. And that's about akin to what the ice coverage is like. Wow. Wow. Okay. That's exciting, except not. Um, so, Jeff, uh, you know, big news this week in solar. Lots of solar things happening. The sun continued to come up on a daily basis. Um, I read something about a solar roadway, and this is not like the rainbow road in Mario Kart. This is something that people actually drive on. Tell me more. This is solar roadways. So the idea is, you know, we have uh, 
tons and tons and tons of paved surface area across the U.S. It's not being used for anything other than cars, and you know there's a ton of open spaces. Cars only use it a small fraction of the day. Why not pave it all over with solar panels that cars can drive on top of? Because if there's one way to make a technology useful, it's to make it more expensive. So solar roadways has been pioneered. We put solar panels into roads. The first uh, one kilometer stretch of solar roadway just opened in France, and the energy generated from this one kilometer stretch of road is going to be enough to run all the street lighting of the village. Uh, this is going to be very hard. Tuvalupish uh, in Normandy. Um, and that's a really thriving, busy, bustling metropolis of 3,500 people. So not too much energy. Mm. But hey, the road only costs $5.2 million. Mm. That's five times more than it typically costs. Mm. Yeah, Jeff, I'm skeptical about the solar roadway. You know, hate to get a pothole. Um, sucks when anybody gets in an accident. But, uh, you know, uh, I like to see developing solar. I was reading also about solar development this week. Um, you know, uh, our favorite superhero... Elon Musk. Iron Man. Yes, Iron Man continues his conquest of the world uh, with a new solar factory um, in Buffalo, New York. Um, yeah, uh, Panasonic and uh, SolarCity slash Tesla slash SpaceX slash Elon Musk are working together on a gigafactory in upstate New York. Um, Buffalo, if you haven't heard of Buffalo, it's a one of the largest and poorest Rust Belt communities um, that was created when Republic Steel went declared bankruptcy in 1984. Uh, yeah, so this is exciting stuff, Jeff. A big, a big uh, cooperative uh, in, endeavor between Panasonic and uh, Mr. Muskie. Um, they'll be working on building cells up there. Uh, they received uh, a lot of money in subsidies to build this uh, factory. But, you know, that's a small price to pay when it means bringing manufacturing jobs back to Buffalo. They took our jobs. It's true. So we'll see what happens with that. But Solar City not looking so great. Definitely a little behind the eight ball as far as funding is concerned. Speaking of other things that are impacting solar negatively, Arizona just decided to put an end to net metering. That is true, Jeff. Yeah, we, we actually commented a few months ago, uh, or actually almost a year ago now, we talked about how Nevada had ended net metering in their state. Well, actually, it turns out Nevada just rescinded that and went back on it. And meanwhile, in, meanwhile in Arizona, Arizona was rescinding net metering in a similar, in a similar way, um, basically deciding to adopt a new uh, comparison plan that allowed uh, – that basically just creates a uh, – uh, uh, ran uh, like a, mar a wholesale market price um, for power from customers and also prevents existing solar customers and rooftop solar customers from banking. And so this is the really important thing, people, um, for net metering in general is that it often allows people to bank, meaning that if you overgenerate in one time and you undergenerate in another, at the end of the year, you can true up. Uh, if you cannot bank, then it's very difficult to use the grid as your battery, to overgenerate in some period and then use power in the next period. And and, and, you know, true it all up. Um, and so uh, the lack of banking is a really a key sticking point um, to allow solar customers to take the economic advantage of using the grid. It's true. Net metering has been a huge boon and incentive to get solar panels deployed. Although Arizona, pretty sunny state. So maybe as solar prices continue to drop, it's not going to be as essential as in somewhere like, I don't know, upstate New York or New Jersey. Um, so we'll see how that pans out. Um, but I think that about covers our short current events for today because we have something really exciting coming up. Really exciting. We, we've got 
the three R's. Oh, I like your pirate, Jeff. Yeah, so we're not we're not talking about pirates and piracy and pillaging. Yar! We're talking about the three revolutions coming to transportation. That's um, autonomous vehicles. Think the Tesla Model S, but better. Um, yeah, better than Tesla vehicle. I know, it's hard. Um, we also have sharing and mobility within transportation. So that's the Ubers and Lyfts of the world. That's a revolution. And then the last revolution is electricity. Yeah, electric vehicles. So combined, autonomy, electric vehicles, and ride-sharing has the power to disrupt, not using that word lightly, completely revolutionize the transportation system. So Okay, thanks, Wax and Philosophic there, Jeff. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> so we'll play you some really fine listening tunes, and when we come back, we're going to get piratey for a little bit. Yar! We're going to share our booty with Dr. Dan Sperling after the break. So come hang out and... Share the seven seas. Listen to a little jig. Yar, we be sailing the seven seas, talking about the three revolutions with Dr. Daniel Sperling. I'm Dan Sperling, professor of engineering and environmental science and policy, director of the Institute of Transportation Studies at UC Davis, and have a moonlighting job as a board member for the California Air Resources Board. Thanks, Dan. So um, we're here today to talk about the the three R's, and uh, I I think these this sounds these sound pretty cool. Um, there's so these you said there's these three revolutions coming. Can you tell us more? The three transportation revolutions are electrification of vehicles, number one, automation of vehicles, number two, and sharing of mobility in vehicles, number three. So that's ride sharing and car sharing. So. Dan, um, is labeling these three things as revolutions really entirely fair? So electrification, we've been hearing about this forever now. Um, on and off, it uh, fluctuates between golf carts some days and Teslas in other days. And shared mobility, um, that, that we've kind of been doing forever. We've had Craigslist rideshare now for decades. So are these actually that revolutionary? What should we be expecting from this? Well, the reality is that we've gone through 50, 60, 70 years of almost no innovation in the transportation system. And basically, nothing's changed. Our cars are a little, a little more reliable, a little uh, safer, but functionally, they're the same. We have transit buses are basically the same. Our highways are basically the same. There's been very little innovation on the passenger transportation so now we have electrification of vehicles. And yes, I would agree it's not, at this point, it's not really revolutionary because we really started on this, well, first of all, we started in this around nine, before 1900, but it's been revived just in the recent years. It will be transformational in terms of our vehicles. I, I agree it probably doesn't, le it doesn't rise to the level being called a revolution. Now, ride-sharing, on the other hand, I would, say, I would argue it's only really become convenient and a really widely appealing until Uber and Lyft 
introduced their services a few, five years ago. And I mean, we've had carpooling in the past, of course, and lots of other things, but this really has the potential to be major, transformational, in the sense that it will, it could really replace private ownership of cars. Third, the third one is probably the most has the most potential to be a true revolution, and that's automation. I mean, that really would transform in a radical way transportation. Uh, we would move to collective car ownership, or we'd actually see companies providing subscription services. People would commute in very different ways. It would get rid of parking. We wouldn't need parking in cities anymore, so we'd have a lot more space. Uh, people, it would affect people's lifestyles. Uh, it would affect urban design. So I would say that has the potential to be truly revolutionary. Sharing would have certainly major transformational effects, and I think electric vehicles also. So, okay, strict definition of revolutions. For the first two, probably not. But certainly, compared to what's happened in the last 60 or 70 years in transportation, it is revolutionary. Okay, so not too much has happened in the past 60, 70 years in transportation. Now we're getting to a place where something is about to happen. So how quickly is this revolution going to happen? When we talk revolutions, is it, you know, in two years' time, we're going to look at and be like, wow, that was quick, sort of like what happened with the smartphone? Or is it going to be more like in 20 or 30 years, people will still be talking about, you know, that next newfangled fully autonomous vehicle that's eventually going to hit the streets? Well, I could be glib, but I'll, I'll, I'll stick to the facts here. <laughs> um, electric vehicles going to happen gradually, for sure. Uh, we are talking in California about most of the new cars in 2030 being new. So, okay, that's 14, 15 years away. Um, in, in the car world, that is revolutionary. Um, Ride-sharing, now that's something, in, down to in, in major cities, I think, that really has the potential to change dramatically fairly quickly. Suburban areas less so, rural areas even less so. So we'll see how, lo- how far that, how fast that plays out. Automation is probably the slowest. It's the most potential for true revolutionary change, but probably also the least, it'll take the longest. And that is, and that's be, not because of the technology. The technology is pretty mu- almost here, but regulations, governments, insurance, lawyers, all those things are going to slow it down. I mean, look what happened just, um, so here we are in December, a few days ago, Uber tried to run their uh, their uh, automated cars through San Francisco. And actually, I rode in one of those cars a couple of weeks ago. They've been doing it, actually, for a few months. And they're not really automated. The driver sits there with his hands just half an inch from the steering wheel. But the government considers this violating the rules on autonomous vehicles and has shut them down. They just announced, actually, I got an email just a few minutes ago, that says Uber is shutting down their, their, their service in their automated vehicle service in San Francisco. So there's a, there's a lot of conservative forces at work here. 
that slow down technology. There's a lot of skepticism about technology. It's going to take over our lives. There's been, you know, decades of this where we say, um, you know, automation is going to, you know, these robots are going to take over the world. You know, think of HAL and the supercomputer in 2001, a space odyssey, where HAL takes over the spaceship. That's what people are afraid of. They're afraid of losing privacy. So I think all those things are going to weigh in with the, slowing down the automation. When we come back, we're going to continue talking with Dr. Daniel Sperling about the three revolutions coming for transportation. Electrification, the three revolutions. On some level, you know, automation is here today. I mean, I can go on this this great website. It's called YouTube, um, and I can find videos of people asleep in their cars in traffic, um, in their Teslas. And uh, you know, I can even for a modest fifty thousand dollars get a car that will you know follow and mind its lane on a freeway behind in traffic. Um, which basically allows me, if I am a Yahoo, um, to take my hands off the wheel. Um, I mean, I'm just saying I could. So, so in some ways, these things are like here today. So, and I just so I want to. So, I'm, what I'm interested in a little bit is kind of I think there is some maybe revolution there that's happening, and maybe like you know saying there is there's obviously barriers to that technology. It's true. Um, doesn't mean that technology might not arrive much sooner than anybody really is ready for it. Um, and what's interesting to me about it is how it will change how we commute, particularly. Because for me, I think I commuted for a long time. And my time in the car commuting was kind of a, was sort of like a uh, pleasure and a curse, right? It, it was on one level, really good time alone. 
It was like my time. It was like my private time, like in my car. And actually, I, I missed my commute time a little bit. And Well, you know, hand, we have a former colleague at UC Davis. She did a lot of studies. She said that the ideal commute is 15 minutes. She did all these studies because people really do want just what you're saying is they want that space between work and home. And they really enjoy, you know, not having to deal with the kids or the, or the husband or wife and just having that peace of mind, listen to the radio, just think. So, so it is true people want some space there. Yeah, I agree. And, but I think also with the autonomy is that when I can sit in traffic and, res and sort of derive a lot of residual value from my time, you know, I, I can sit there and I can do work or I can sit there, I could sleep, quite frankly. I could do whatever it is, right? I, when I can derive all that residual value from my time, I'm way happy to sit in the car uh, for a longer amount of time. I'm, I'm, I have less, uh, you know, problem with sitting in traffic, I guess. So that's, you're talking about the downside of this revolution, what will be what we call a dystopia or the, the hell of the automated revolution. And that is, indeed, people will enjoy having an automated car where they don't have to pay attention. They can read, sleep, uh, text, whatever they want, safely, easily. And the cost of time, in, in transportation, we always use the cost of time in the vehicle as the major uh, uh, element in determining whether to build new roads, add capacity. It's the major benefit of transportation. And all that disappears. So it's going to revolutionize our whole study of transportation research and the transportation profession as well. But the, our, that's the concern, is people really will enjoy automation, those that can afford it, I would note. And so there will be people doing those two- and three-hour commutes. They can, they can sleep in the car. It can be their hotel. It can be their, their office. And what that means is a lot more vehicle use. And that means uh, more energy use. It means uh, more sprawl of our urban areas. So the potential is really large. So what we want with automation is that people don't have private personal ownership of these vehicles, but they're collectively owned, that there's a subscription service, that there's multiple people using it. Then we can come up with, you know, what many of us would think as the heaven, the utopia of, of transportation and automation is that you will have much less vehicle use because the people will be sharing and they'll get the benefits of the automation, but they won't abuse it in the sense of traveling long distances, sprawl, living in Tahoe and commuting to Davis mm -hmm. for work, although that sounds somewhat appealing to me, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not, it's not in the in the public's interest it's not it's not in society's interest for that to happen so i'm really pretty glad that you brought up these heaven and hell scenarios um because it really comes down to the perspective of who you're talking to um you've mentioned that you know commuting from tahoe to davis would maybe be more in line with you even though it's not necessarily in line with the public's interest so what can one do or what should governments be considering doing to sort of nudge this new technology into more of a public benefit as opposed to a public detriment. All right. I think there's three strategies here we need to pursue. One is we want the vehicles to be electric. 
so that they have less environmental and energy and climate change impact. Number two, we want as many, we want a lot of people in the vehicle. What we, in the profession, we say load, high load factor. So instead of like UberX, where they pick up one person, they drive them around, drop them off, and drive over to the next one, the average load factor is, you know, maybe 0.7, you know, people in. The, so you have less than one person in the car, one passenger at any one time. We want that 0.7 to go up to two or three or four. And then we'll have less vehicle use, we'll have less energy use, less environmental impact. Uh, so that's number two. And number three is we would like people to give up, as many people as possible, give up private personal car ownership. Because the problem with having your own car, the way our system is, is that people think of using the vehicles having almost zero cost. They pay for the car, it's a sunk cost, and the only variable costs are maybe gasoline, if people even think about it that much, maybe parking, and that's it. They don't take into account the true cost of travel, of using their vehicle. And so they travel a lot more. People just, without thinking, they walk out the door and they get in the car, whether to go for a quarter mile to get a, get a six-pack of beer or you know, to drive to Tahoe from Davis. So we, we want the idea, so if we can make the cost be, the variable cost be the true cost. So if you use that, that Lyft or Uber or that automated vehicle with other people and you're paying the full cost of it, the full cost of the service, you're gonna make decisions about where you travel much more consciously taking into account the full cost. And of course, that's before you even get to uh, air pollution costs, environmental costs. And if you put that on top of it, it would be even better. But even without that, so the third, so that's why the third strategy is to wean people away from personal ownership. And so these automated cars, we would want to use policy to encourage collective organizations, can be nonprofits, companies, to provide a subs subscription service. And actually, in many ways, it'll be much better than what we have now. You know, you just press a button, it comes picture, you, takes you where you want to go, drops you off. You don't have to have any of the hassles about owning a car, flat tires, inflating the vehicles. You know, my brand new car has these uh, very efficient tires, but but they seem to lose air all the time, so I always have to go <laughs> inflating my tires. <laughs> Um, all of that disappears. And, and if you have car sharing thrown in with that, you know, where you can, if you need a pickup truck or you want to go take a sports car for a bit, you can do that. You, you're liberated from car ownership. So I don't know if everybody wants to be liberated from car ownership. And doesn't this also create a number of equity concerns, which is maybe autonomous vehicles are slightly more expensive than you know, conventional vehicles, but what's to prevent the, the wealthy from buying their own? So equity is very much, so the, the uh, utopia version of this story is that we will make it very cheap because an automated car with multiple riders will actually be, should be substantially cheaper than transit, should be tr substantially cheaper than owning 
your own car, even if it's an old clunker. And so from an equity perspective, it, it promises to actually be quite superior to what we have now. Now, it is true that if you have a lot of money and you're rich, then you could buy one of these cars and just use it, and they will be more expensive. So one of, I think, part of policy will be to, to, to price automated cars highly if, if it's for personal ownership, but to provide carrots and incentives if it's not. So, but right now, if you're low income, well, even more than that, if you can't drive for whatever reason, if you're too old, too young, have some kind of physical uh, ailments that keep you from driving. I have a sister, for instance, she just, when she was young, she had an accident where she's perfectly normal, but she doesn't have peripheral vision. She can't get a driver's license. She can't drive. And that's hugely limiting in our society. So there's a lot of people out there that if they had access to these automated shared mobility services, uh, would have a far better life. They'd have far more accessibility, whether you're poor or, or for any of these other reasons. Okay, but, okay, here, here is the problem. Do people really want to sit in a car with strangers? Mm-hmm. I think, um, so th- there's two problems with this whole utopia thing. One is, are people really going to give up car ownership? You have your dog you want to take in the car. You've got your golf clubs. You want to throw all your junk in the car. If you, do you really want to give that up? Are people willing to give it up? Or at what price will they give it up is really the best way of looking at it. And the other part is about really sharing rides. And so I'm really interested in figuring this out because uh, certainly a lot of people are apprehensive about getting in a car with strangers. Um, maybe we can deal with that. You know, Maybe we can redesign our cars so there's a a private entrance to each seat and the seats are separated in some way. But even then there's no adult, you know, driver, like with Uber or Lyft, you have a driver or a bus, you have a driver. You have no one there. You're just there with the strangers and we're going to have to deal with this. So that's part of the challenge. Okay. So many places to go with this dance. So many places <laughs> to go. Okay, Dan. I can't wait. Okay, I know. We're going to bring it home later. I have some whimsical (laughs) things to ask you, but I don't want to get to whimsy yet. So, yeah, it seems like that is really the crux of this to some extent, the the question of um, particularly, you know, where these technologies really will fit well and what applications will they kind of fit well the quickest and deliver the best cost performance, right? Because they're going to get taken up. And so... um, I am really interested, you know, we're talking about a lot about moving people um, in the, this because I think our, our, our third revolution was, was sharing here. But, you know, we're also talking a lot about autonomy and electrification in moving um, goods and things, right, too. Um, and that seems like a pretty uh, uh, interesting change as well. Um, what about when we have a lot of autonomous just like delivery trucks, like Amazon trucks or or – uh, or drones. Drones. Lots of, you know, see, you know, swarms of Amazon drones. Um, what is that? That seems like a revolution that I'm kind of scared of, actually. Yeah. And also think about these trucks 
even on, so you were talking about urban delivery, but think about on highways. You have these platoons of trucks with no drivers in them. I mean, doesn't that evoke some of these movies we've seen? Uh, and you're driving along and you see this big, huge truck next to you with no one in it. It would scare the hell out of a lot of people. Um, and would you trust it? And at and the end of the day, if we have one accident, one truck that goes bad, crashes in, kills some people, the way our political system works is it's going to shut down the whole thing. So there really is the standard of safety is really, really high to make this work. But the the upside is huge. You know, automated cars and trucks are going to definitely be safer. There's no way. I mean, computers and robots, they don't drink alcohol. They don't get distracted. They are inherently going to be safer. And yeah, there might, something might go wrong. You know, those computer engineer, computer engineers doing the coding might have screwed up somewhere, but almost definitely they're going to be a lot safer. And on that note, I think we're going to put on some great listening tunes. And when we come back, we're talking about the three R's. The three R's in transportation. Let me put my arms around your head. Gee, it's hot. Let's go to bed. Don't forget to turn on the light. Don't laugh, babe, it'll be all right. Pour me out another phone. I'll ring and see if your friends are home. Strange ones in the dome can lend us a book we can read up alone and try to get it on like once before. You're listening to Watts Radio. We're talking about the three R's in transportation, the three major revolutions that's in electrification, shared vehicle use, and fully autonomous vehicles. Well, you say that, but you know what if what if my friend Vlad, Mr. Vlad Putin, decides to get involved? <laughs> And he hires some, you know, nefarious hacker types to uh, make my car drive off the road. And suddenly, you know, now I, I have no manual controls. You know, my my Ranger, it's a it's a stick shift and it's got manual windows. I could just roll the window down and jump out. You know, I can't do that in my autonomous four pod Tesla of the future. Airplanes are a lot safer than cars, and yet people are a lot more nervous about planes than they are cars. So there is a psychological effect. Yes, there's a real concern about hacking into these vehicles, these robots, because we've come to appreciate that those there's people out there that are very smart. And any you give them a challenge, they'll they'll rise to the challenge, and uh, for good reason or bad reasons. So yes, we're going to have to deal with that somehow. Um, George Bush used to say, "There's all these." What was it? A lot of evil people out there, bad people. <laughs> well, there's some out there, and some are politically motivated. Some are motivated in other ways. Um, but that's the direction we're going in. So we're going to have, I think there's no question we're going to have automated vehicles in the future. And the question really is, the only real question is how fast uh, we move in that direction and exactly how that's going to happen. But I think it's inevitable. Um, so you say that uh, robots and um, autonomous vehicles don't drink, but if you've ever seen Futurama, 
uh, the classic Matt Groening show. Um, they, they have a robot there that consumes alcohol as its fuel source. And in fact, I often hear about ethanol as a fuel of the future. So is it entirely fair to say that these autonomous vehicles of the future won't be drinking? I'll correct that and say they won't be intoxicated. <laughs> uh. <laughs> I knew you were going to go for it. <laughs> um, cool. Uh, back to a more serious question, I guess. <laughs> um, so uh, because, it, I guess, autonomous vehicles are likely to be coming, um, and that's kind of, it seems, what the two other revolutions are there to support. It's more of the autonomous vehicle revolution with as a big R, and then electrification and shared mobility as maybe small R's that support and support it and are around it. Um, what can, I guess, governments do, or what should they be doing to make this process go more smoothly? Should, should governments be working to accelerate this? Um, or should they be dragging their feet and waiting for, I guess, private enterprises to sort of push against it like we're starting to see with Uber, which is more willing to just take the initiative and let policy fall into place around it? Well, I think electrification is almost unequivocally good. It's far more efficient, quiet, better experience, less environmental impact in almost all circumstances. So encouraging electrification is good. Sharing, so shared rides I think are unequivocally good also. If you have the UberX service, not so much. I mean, it's fine. It's, I use it all the time. I use Lyft and Uber. I love it. It's so far superior to taxis. I use it even when I have my car in the garage just because it's easier. I can, in fact, a shared ride is like an automated car. It's just you have a human instead of a robot. And I like that. I like being chauffeured around. I like a chauffeur, whether it's human or, or a robot. Uh, and so, but just carrying one person around at a time, that's not really adding much value to society. But if there's multiple people in the car, it is adding a lot of value. So I think the role of policy is to somehow figure out how to support Liftline, Uberpool, and a lot of these microtransit services like vans that pick up people and take them around that are demand responsive. Um, and so I think all of that is good. There's, there are issues about how the companies treat drivers, whether they're employees or contractors and giving them benefits and so on. And certainly there's lots of issues there, but the general thrust is, to, in my mind, is unequivocally in the right direction and a good thing you know, for pooling services. So I think Uber pool, Liftline, microtransit, we should be doing everything we can to encourage it. The automation's a little trickier because it can be just a tool of the rich in a way that leads to a lot more vehicle use, and they, don't, they won't necessarily be electric. So we want those automated cars to be electric at a minimum and ideally carrying multiple riders. But that's going to be tough, you know, pulling that off in, in America where, you know, owning your own car is something we've always aspired to. It's not just American, you know, it's, it's everywhere. People like the freedom and flexibility and everything else that comes with cars. 
with private ownership of cars. So we're going to have to somehow deal with it. So the challenge for policy is to provide those carrots that really make people want to share rides and give up car ownership. And then we use policy on the other hand uh, uh, as well to make those vehicles electric. And now, now we're going towards utopia here. And we have we can provide access to a lot more people. It's a smaller environmental footprint. We, can, we have a lot more urban space. A huge part of our cities is devoted to roads and parking. You know, electric, automated cars, they take up much less space. You can make the lanes narrower. The cars are closer together. So we don't need as many roads. We don't need any parking. Uh, it really leads to a renaissance in our cities. We can redesign our cities to be much more human-based. I have another idea on this. Well, go for it. Okay. So from the auto industry perspective, they have to think about cars in the future being very different. Not only electric, but now they design the cars to be driver-centric. You design cars for power, performance. If you have shared rides and you're not the driver, you don't want high acceleration. You want it to be smooth. You want easy access. You don't care about the car being, what, what's the, I think it's BMW uses the expression, it's a uh, driving. The ultimate driving machine. The ultimate driving machine. That's all becomes irrelevant. And so it's a whole new way of thinking about cars as we go forward. So it's revolutionary, you know, so a lot of this is revolutionary in that sense too. Have I convinced you? Maybe. Um, so about convincing me, I guess. Um, so a lot of the the revolutions, they seem very urban-centric. And if there's anything that we've learned from this past election, it's there seems to be an increasing divide across urban and rural Americans. So are the three revolutions going to leave rural America behind? Is this entirely a city-centric focus? Or what's going to happen with our, our rural friends? Are they are they going to move to urban environments? Are they going to be obligated to move to urban environments? Or Well, now we're bringing it into a political world. <laughs> um, no, I, I think, seriously, I think it works. It certainly works in suburban areas. So really rural areas is really a small percentage of our population, a small percentage of our travel. Uh, suburban is a big part. And I think we really do need to think about suburban. So suburban, there are challenges. I, right now, when Uber and Lyft services, when they're in New York, Manhattan, Washington, LA, they're aiming for a one to two minute uh, response time. And that's not going to be practical in a suburban and, or certainly in a rural area. So I think, but if you're willing to accept a little more longer lag time, um, there's no reason why it can't work in suburban areas. Rural rural areas uh, is a more is is more challenging. But if they're electric, and it's not much, to- it's a small percentage of total, then it's not a big deal. But a lot of those rural people are getting are elderly. Actually, the rural population tends to be more elderly. And if you can provide good service to them, and then, then we're talking about something that could be appealing. Revolutionary for all. So, Dan, getting away from this whole 
well, or maybe we'll come back to later this whole us versus them nature of these revolutions with respect to maybe um, certain political splits, certain uh, political divides, and also urban exurban divides. But um, California, right? So California, we were an island. Um, we uh, we were we've we've flirted with being our own country. If we were our own country. We, we, we are well it's well known that we would be the sixth largest economy in the world it occasionally goes up or down and um, you know I think I get an email actually if we uh, gain a rank um, which is a funny email to get but uh, mostly has to do with exchange rates but it, that's okay exactly <laughs> it mostly has to do with exchange rates so if the euro goes down as well as some other anyway benchmark currencies it's good stuff but uh, so at any rate California California is not, is, is going to save the world um, that's the that's the premise Dan uh, so how how are we going to do it? How is California going to going to solve these problems? How are we going to be the leader that the world needs in the vacuum that is uh, the next administration? Well, I think we will be a model. We have certainly in the environmental area and some others. We've been a model. We'll continue to be a model, and uh, other countries like those of us that. You know, in the Institute of Transportation Studies, we deal with China a lot. China likes to, the government deals with a lot because it, we're below the radar in terms of global politics. And so they can work with the state of California, with University of California, and being innovative environmentally. Uh, and so we can have influence in that way. Uh, we do have a cap and trade system in California that's linked now with Quebec and about to be linked with Ontario. Uh, we have a low carbon fuel standard for fuels that's been adopted in Oregon. So partly, I think it's more we're a model and an example. So if we're success, we have to be successful though. We have to do it well. And I think that's the real key is, uh, you know, we don't want to get politicized in how we do these things. We want to do things competently that do have, that don't harm the economy, that are positive in an equity perspective. And if we can do that, then others are going to look towards us as an, a, an alternative. And in two years or four years, there'll be new, and there'll be new elections. So uh, if you were let's just say, in charge tomorrow, uh, how would you, you know, on a, so, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about, we talked a lot about kind of general policy prescriptions for these three revolutions, but could you give a quick example or an example of how you might, um, how you might hit the ground running to do this in, set, let's say, a city like uh, Los Angeles? Um, how should Los Angeles get going on preparing for the three revolutions and uh, choosing uh, the heaven uh, versus the hell? Well, the simple thing is you provide a lot of charging infrastructure for vehicles, hydrogen stations for the fuel cell vehicles. So that's kind of a simple start. You improve the transit system in such a way that they are building a metro rail system. And so now you try to incentivize the Lyft and Ubers and other kinds of micro-transit companies to provide good access and egress from the rail lines. So that way, 
you provide a good alternative to private car ownership. You create some kind of incentives for people, for the companies, for the Lyft and Ubers to offer their pooling services. And the automation is still not here. So uh, one does, okay, automation. When we talk about automation, as uh, earlier, there is a lot of confusion about that because Tesla, what they call autopilot, and you can get in that car and you can, on the freeway, you can sit in the back seat and it'll, it'll drive itself for quite a ways, probably safely. Um, there is a little possibility that it won't. <laughs> it, it does have a tendency to you know, exit when you don't want it to exit and a few other little uh, glitches now and then. But really, automation is only of interest from a public or public interest perspective when you cross the line to becoming fully driverless. And that means that you don't have to have a driver's license to operate that vehicle. You can get in the vehicle, press some buttons, and it takes you where you want to go. Now you're talking about something revolutionary. Now you're talking about something that provides a lot of value and a lot of benefits. You can get multiple vehicle people in it. You can, if you don't have, if you're not able to drive for whatever reason, you can use the vehicle. Um, but if it's a car where you have to be able to take control back, that's not revolutionary. That's incremental. And that is here now. Um, but it's not ver from a societal perspective. It's not that exciting. It's not until it becomes fully driverless and the fully driverless is where that's where we see the challenges with government intervening, public uh, pushback, insurance industries playing a role. That's what's going to slow it down. But driverless, that's what we really need. Some people make the distinction between self-driving and driverless. Self-driving is kind of what uh, Tesla has now. Although I point out that Tesla is self-driving only on freeways. So I actually took one of their cars and tried to drive it in Sacramento City. Um, I found out it does not pay attention to traffic lights or stop signs, for instance. <laughs> so they got a little work to do on that. All right. So last question on my part for you, Dan. Um, what's the most interesting shared mobility ride that you've had? Well, almost all my, my rides have been with just a, a single driver. I, and, and the drivers are fascinating. It's you know, they're everything from retired old folks to actors and, you know, a lot of people, military people, all kinds of interesting characters. But my ride share, I keep, I haven't done enough of it because when I, every time I use the shared, the pooling services, everyone just sits there <laughs> with their, with their smartphones. <laughs> they don't want to talk to each other. I hear stories that people flirt and you know with each other and all these other things happen. I've not seen any of it. Every my experience is everyone withdraws into their shell and uses their smartphone. So maybe if that's the case, we don't need like isolated pods. We just need to you know promote more smartphone use. Thanks, Dan.
Yeah.